The sermon text this morning is from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Jonas and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith, but they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. I, I trust that every person here knows about the Boy Scouts. We may not know all about their origins, but we know the influence that they've had in this country. It was originally started in England in uh, 1908 by a retired Lieutenant General who started the Boy Scouts and uh, came over to the States in about 1910, uh, the formation, and it became the Boy Scouts of America. Uh, but it was the original founder of the Boy Scouts that came up with its motto, which is to be prepared. That's kind of the, the idea is Boy Scouts are to be prepared. He was once asked, uh, what are we to be prepared to do? He says, well, just about anything. He says, but the issue is to be prepared. Be prepared, basically, to do your duty, to respond well to the needs of people. That's what it was kind of founded on. And, and you can see that same idea is in this, this continuation of this letter as Paul speaks to Timothy about being prepared. Paul knows he's going to die just right in chapter 4, just a few verses away. He's going to speak that his departure is very near. And he knows, Timothy knows, uh, Paul knows that Timothy won't have him anymore. It, it, it's a, remember, it's kind of like the last will and testament. It's a passing of the baton. And he wants Timothy to be prepared. But what, what for? Well, the trouble that he has. You heard in the first verse, it kind of arrests our attention. That in those last days, you'll have difficulty. He wants him to be prepared for this difficulty. It's not difficulty from outside the walls of the church, by the way. It's not the cultural implosion that may be going on, although that may be difficult for the church to bear. I think he's speaking more about the trouble within the church, to be prepared for the trouble that comes within the church. And so he gives Paul three instructions. They're very practical for us today. Three instructions so that we can be prepared, that we can endure, that we can finish well. That's really Paul's intent for Timothy, to finish well. Isn't that our desire? I mean, don't we want to finish well? Don't we want to run to the end? Not jog, not be carried over. We want to run well. And it's, it's heeding these instructions, they're going to move in us to finish well. 
So there's three of them today. Number one will be <clears throat> that you need to understand the difficulties come. You need to be prepared. You need to expect certain struggles in this life. I'm not making light of them as if they're nothing. I'm just saying we have to be prepared to expect those. And, and you see that in the first verse. And then secondly, he calls us to avoid godlessness. That there's, an, there's, a, there's a role for us to play that we are to actively avoid godlessness. Godlessness in people, in religion, and in false teachers, as we're going to see in 2 through 8. And then last, there's this call to rest, or I would even say rejoice in the promise that God will bring his church to prevail. There's a certain patience that we'll need, though, but, but a resting patience. So let's look at the first one in verse 1. Look at it with me again. He says, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. It's interesting. It's a command. It doesn't sound that way, but it is. He says, understand this. In other words, it's an imperative. He's saying, Timothy, you need to understand. You need to expect. You need to prepare for. You need to be ready for the times of difficulty are going to come. Don't be surprised when trouble comes from within the church. In other words, does not Timothy know this? Well, I think he does know this, but I think Paul's driving the stake deeper in the ground, saying, brother, this is going to be an issue for all time. This isn't a temporal wave, but this is going to be part of these last days, which raises the question, what are the last days? A lot of us think the last days are just the last days, right? The few days before Jesus returns. I don't think that's what it means. I think the last days is a period of time, uh, beginning with the coming of Christ in the flesh, the incarnation, lasting all the way till he returns in glory and power. You know, if you look in the Old Testament for the last days, it speaks about the times of Messiah being the last days. Because when the Messiah comes, there's going to come deliverance and a kingdom being established. That's what Jesus came to do. So, so it's from the beginning of Jesus coming as a child, the incarnation, all the way till the end. Listen, Paul sees himself in the last days. He sees Timothy in the last days. Otherwise, why would he say, avoid such people? It wouldn't make any sense. If there were days yet to come, he wouldn't be warning Timothy now to avoid these people. Uh, Peter, when he preaches in Acts chapter 2, says the same thing. He says, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I'll pour out my spirit. Upon all flesh. God did that, right? God did that on Pentecost. The Spirit came, showing us that the age to come was breaking into our age, that overlapping of the ages. The last days has begun. And it's the last days because God has given us his last message of hope. That is the gospel through Jesus Christ, that he's come to bring a kingdom and to invite sinners by faith into this kingdom. That's what it says in Hebrews. In these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. So friends, what I want you to see is that Paul is saying to Timothy, and he's saying to us to understand this, that in these last days of which we currently are living, trouble, difficulties will come. This is what we call the church age, the church age from Jesus coming to establish his church all the way until that time when he comes to reclaim his church. That these days will be difficult. The word difficult means hard, strenuous. It even has the meaning of kind of fierce, 
Same word translates the Gadarean demoniac in Mark 4. So there's a fierceness to these days. But it's not all the same. Every season isn't the same. You see, he says that in these last days there will come times of difficulty. Some times will be more perilous than others in the church. So it's not always the same. We've been in a season of perhaps ease. We begin to think, ah, this is the way it is. Paul's saying it's not. The, it may be for a season, but not always. And that's why he's saying prepare. Because, you know, we quickly accommodate to the ease of which our culture affords us. And even the seasons of church when it's peaceable. But he says, understand this, the times of difficulty will come. I think he gives us a warning here not to just think because it has been easy, it will continue to be that way. That's what we do, don't we? I mean, many of us, when we come to faith in Christ, we think, praise God, we come to faith, our sins have been forgiven, we've been adopted by God, he is our father, we're his children, now things are going to kind of get smooth, and we kind of lower our guard, we don't, we don't expect trouble to come, because now he's on our team, and, and things are going to go well for us. We kind of have a, a romantic view, both of life of the Christian, but even life in the church. We think of life in the church, we're Christians, we're going to be harmonious and sweet and loving, and there's going to be no conflict. I remember when Carol and I went to interview at our first church, and uh, we went there and met the people, and it was a sweet time, and got to know them, they got to know us, heard about their ministries, and uh, just, just had a lovely time. Came back, I had a few months left in seminary, and there was a minister there, a mentor to me, about 30 years older than I was, and I came and told him everything about how great the church was. And he just looked at me, and he kind of smiled, and he just says, just remember, it's the church. And they're filled with reforming sinners like you. And he probably could have patted my head at that point and said, I, I just, I was naive. I, I was naive. I went into it thinking, oh, it's going to be just beautiful in every way. And it was a wonderful experience. But it had difficulties and struggles and trials. I say the same thing to couples, premarital counseling. You know, they say it's trying to take the rose-colored glasses off. You're trying to inform these couples to think everything's going to be sweet and just nice and perfectly rosy, and you're going to get along great. So I give them books to read. You know, one is, what did you expect? In other words, when sinners say, I do. You know, I, I always say to the man, she's going to disappoint you. I say to the woman, he's going to disappoint you. Trying to help them prepare for a season that while marriage is a glorious institution, if you have been married for a few months, you know it also has points of challenge and difficulty and hardship. And I think that's all Paul's saying here. Recognize that in the church, while we are a colony of heaven, we do live on earth. And we are still reforming sinners. We're being changed by God's grace. But it's slow. It's incremental. We hurt each other. There are times of difficulty. But while he says preparing means that we don't presume everything's going to be rosy, we also don't want to panic. Paul's not encouraging any panic. He's just saying know what you ex know to expect these things. Don't panic, but expect it. Now, folks, we've come out of a season of difficulty. It's been Past year has been challenging. We had a lot of years that were very easy and smooth. These, this past year has been challenging. It's been difficult. Conflict in the church. We need to expect those things. We don't long for them. We don't want them to remain forever. 
We want to move through them and by God's grace see redemption. But we want to understand that particularly in this time of our culture, there are many churches suffering in the same ways that we have at various points, some longer than us. So we have to understand that in this age, in this church age, Paul is saying times of difficulty, seasons of difficulty will come. We've just passed through one of them. I appreciate about the Bible that it's truthful and honest. Jesus doesn't pull any punches. He says, they hated me, they're going to hate you. I mean, Paul doesn't put, he doesn't sugarcoat it for us. He doesn't say, when you get in the church, you get in this incubator and you never suffer again. No, we just suffer together now. And now we labor with each other as we press on. You know, Peter wrote the church in Asia Minor. He says, don't be surprised at the fiery trial that you endure as if something strange is happening to you. Can't you hear? If this isn't strange, Paul's just preparing us. So that's what you see in verse 1. You, you see clearly Paul is saying, understand difficulties will come. He's preparing us. But now he goes on in 2 through 8, and he shows us where the trouble comes from. He shows where these difficulties are coming from. And, and I'm going to say that he calls us to avoid godlessness. I have three points under this because he says avoid godlessness, avoid godless religion, and avoid godless teachers. So they're avoiding three things. So if you're taking notes, these are three parts of just the second point of what to avoid. First, though, avoiding godlessness. Look with me at two to, two to four. He says, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of good. Nineteen characteristics here, folks. This doesn't, it's not embodied in one person, but they're characteristics of an age. And remember now, he's speaking about the church. So these are characteristics within people who are professing to walk out faith, but are not. It's really a warning to us. Uh, one author kind of said it's like a, a wanted poster. And here are the descriptions of those who want to profess to know Christ, but perhaps are not walking in light of the gospel. Now, I'm not going to go through every nine, each one of these 19. I, I kind of want to put them all under this category of disordered love. And the reason I do that is because look at how we enter the list. Lovers of self. And look at how we exit the list. They're not lovers of God. There's a disordered love. It's not my term. Augustine, the great church father of the fourth century, spoke about inordinate love. And inordinate love is loving something more than the one who created it. So it's like me fawning over the Sistine Chapel and talking about his glory and greatness and ignoring Michelangelo standing next to me. Or it can be loving something more than the value of the object. So it's me loving, you know, you can imagine, crass example, but hopefully clear, house is burning, I run in to save my new Mac and avoid taking my son out. It, it doesn't make sense. You're, you're loving something more than it is. It's fine to 
enjoy the good things in life. But when you love them more than they're worth, or you love them more than God, Augustine says this is a disordered love. Now you see this disordered love in three ways. You see a love of self. Love of self is simply narcissism. When we love ourselves most above all other things, that we're going to bring trials and conflict in the church. Loving ourselves or narcissism is when we begin to see everything through how it affects me. That I'm the one on the throne. You know, Campus Crusade used to have this picture of a throne. Is God on the throne or is, is your heart on the throne? Uh, loving self is, is seeing all of life orbit around me. You know, God, in the Bible, God is the main character of the story. He's the star of the show. But, but narcissism puts us as the star of the show. And God becomes kind of a bit player in the play. And he's there to help me get along to achieve all that I need to achieve. This nar- you even see it in simple things. You're running late to a meeting. And all of a sudden, traffic just jams up. And you start to get frustrated that you're running late. Now, it's an accident up on the side of the road. You're not even thinking about what the impact is to that family, just how it's affecting you. This happens to me. It happens to you. This is just narcissism. We see everything through the lens of how am I being treated? How am I being respected? How am I being appreciated? It makes for unappeasable people. But not just self-love, love of things, love of money, love of possessions. This is where happiness is driven by what I have. That we want stuff, and in the new stuff we get, we're going to somehow be happy. That I'll love life as I get things. Or notice, love of pleasure. That's just hedonism. In other words, whether it's food, whether it's sex, whether it's alcohol, whether it's friendships, whether it's body, body image, that, that my happiness is driven by how I feel comforted or loved or feel good. So all these disordered loves end up with disordered relationships. So you think about it. And as we says, they're proud, they're arrogant. I mean, people who are in love with themselves tend to be that way. They're proud, they're arrogant. You know, people that are lovers of pleasure. Uh, they're, uh, they're disobedient to their parents. Why? Because they want to do what they want to do. I mean, I've got to go the way i got to go. Or unholy Heartless, unappeasable, people that love things will never be appeasable because the things get old, they'll break, they'll need more. So do you see how this disordered love gives way to a disordered church? So the more these things make up the people of God, then the more disordered the church will be. So he says, avoid this kind of godlessness, repent. This might be a time for you if you're being convicted by that. This is the beauty of repentance. We, we seek God to forgive us and to give us a heart of love. You know, Jonathan Edwards wrote a great book, Religious Affections. And in this book, he said that true religion is primarily affections. Do we love God? Do we grow in our love for God? Does our, our love for God and all that was read twice from Ephesians 1, the incredible love of God, chose us in him before the foundations of the world to be holy and blameless. Does our love for God begin to eclipse our love for ourselves? It's a good calibrator for us. 
So he tells us to avoid that kind of godlessness. And second, he tells us to avoid godless religion. Look with me at verse 5. He says, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. You know, what he's saying here is a disordered love will give way to a disordered religion. It'll be form and not substance. You know, it's kind of, it can look good. Right? I, I mean, there it is. It's, you got some carrying your Bible, you're quoting some scripture, you're going to church, you're perhaps participating in a ministry, but it's a religion in form, in appearance. But notice it says it denies power. It doesn't have power to change us. So we're not being changed. We kind of are the same way. Yeah, we don't really have a love for the Lord. We don't have a love for the Word. Yeah, we go to church. We do all these things. But there's no increasing love for the glory of God. It has a form to it. It just doesn't have anything inside of it. Like a helium balloon just continuing to expand, but nothing's inside. Jesus spoke about this in Matthew 23, but so did the Old Testament prophets in Isaiah 1, Amos 2. But Jesus said it clearly. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. So he's speaking to the religious here. He says, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence or self-love. Looks good on the outside. But it's not on the inside. This was my religion for years. I mean, I'd go to church. I prayed when I needed to. I prayed when I got scared. I was a fairly moral individual. And, and I, had, I would have told you I'm a religious man. But there was no change taking place in me. There was no growing love for God or neighbor. There was no evidence of real power, the Spirit of God dwelling within me, changing me from glory to glory. I didn't see any of that. It was like, it was like a dead EKG. It was just like that. The form remained, but there was no life in me. In fact, one time I went to the first conference after I became a pastor, and I met an older man on a bus from Washington State. We're going to a conference in Colorado. And uh, he told me an incredible story. He had been a pastor for years, more than a dozen years before he became a Christian. Yeah. He, he preached and he did good things and he was moral. He listened to people with their problems. He each week would read from the scripture and explain it. It was one time when he was preaching through the gospels, he preached the gospel and he was converted. He was converted by his own preaching. By his own preaching, you can have a form of godliness or a form of religion without power. Does that scare you? I mean, does that, does that cause you to just stop and pause and think? Is it like smelling salts to you? I mean, when you look at your religion or you look at your, is it form without substance? I mean, ask yourself questions. Have I grown in my love for God over the years? Do I find my heart? beginning to move more towards heaven. I, I want to see the one who died for me. Do I have a growing love for the word? Do I find myself thinking, in the word I will find life and direction, and I want to change to it? I mean, do you have a growing intolerance with sin? Are you led to repentance quicker? Do you have a growing love for your neighbor? I mean, these are questions that help us understand what level of hypocrisy do we have? Because it brings harm and shame to the church. 
This is what I love about teenagers, actually. I love about teenagers of those in their early 20s. They have no tolerance for hypocrisy. They see it. Now, they can't see it in themselves, hands down. Uh, but they can see it in us. And, you know, they're like the canaries in the mine. I mean, they'll identify them. If you ask your children uh, what levels of hypocrisy in me do you see, just sit down and brace yourself for an answer. They will tell you. And this is the reason why a lot of our teenagers leaving home leave the church, because I don't know that we've given them a religion of godliness with power. A lot of times we've presented for them form, but not a lot of substance. This is why we need the gospel. I want to offer the gospel to you. I, 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 want, to, I want to remind each and every one of you here that God, only the gospel can move us from self-love to divine love. Only the gospel can move us from loving things and pleasure to loving God. Only the gospel can do this. We were enemies with God. We are tight-fisted with God. It's only the knowledge that God has given to us a son. I mean, a son from glory who did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself. He took on flesh. He became a servant. He died. He died on a cross that through faith in him, we might be forgiven, reconciled, and made new, and given the spirit with which we can then begin to move from glory to glory. God has done this. You heard it read twice before the foundation of the world. Why does he give us that temporal modifier? Well, because it shows us we didn't do anything. We didn't warrant it. There wasn't some potential in you. God is so gracious to us. Only the power of the gospel will help us to love God and love our neighbor as ourselves. You know, we're having Alex come and preach to us this weekend about loving our neighbor. Folks, don't even try it unless we begin to love God. Because it's our love for God that will give birth and evidence by our love for neighbor. So he says, avoid godless religion. And thirdly, he says, avoid godless teachers. This is where we get to the kind of the more interesting part of the scripture, if you will. He says in verse 5, avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning, never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth, just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. Now, you know that's why we always preach expositorily here, because these passages you don't run to to pick up and preach. And so we go through each book of the Bible, and we handle all the issues, even those that are more difficult. What's he saying here? Well, I think he's really giving us a warning to be aware of the teachers to whom we listen. You know, th this idea of, of uh, for among them. I want you to see that they come from within the church. Notice it says, for among them. Among who? We'll go back to verse 2. Verse 2, it says, for people will be lovers of self. From among those people in verse 2. From among the church will come people who creep in and capture these. They're predators. That's what they are. They're predators. They're, they're creeping and they're sneaking in to capture weak women. 
Now let's get right to the heart of it, right? Weak women, that Greek word means little women. Obviously, he doesn't speak of stature here. Uh, probably speaking to they have little understanding of the power of the gospel. That's why they're still burdened by their sin. They haven't been trained well. They haven't been addressed well. And they creep into their homes. Women weren't in the marketplace as they are now. And so these false teachers would often come in and speak to women while they're in their homes. They're like wolves in sheep's clothing. You know what they're like? They're like Satan, kind of sneaking his way into our first parents' home, the garden, where he then seduces Eve to distrust God, to think that she can be like God, uh, planting seeds of darkness that would lead her to wander from the truth and into all kinds of conflict and trouble of which we still walk. That's what they're like. Uh, they, they come in to dissuade, to lead people away. And these women, uh, they are speaking of, you know, they're burdened by sin, scrupulous consciences, not walking in the beauty of the gospel that declares them free. Uh, they're given way to various passions, not being encouraged to grow in sanctification and self-control. They're always learning, but they're not growing to that point of knowledge of discerning the truth from error. They have trouble understanding. These are more characteristics than anything. Paul isn't opposed to women, and Paul is hardly a misogynist. Paul already, chapter 2 of the first letter, he says to teach the women. He's already commended Lois and Eunice, Timothy's mother and grandparents, or mother and grandmother. You know, that they were women of strong theological backbone. The men weren't influencing Timothy. It was the women that were influencing him. So this is not an indictment against femininity in any way. It does speak about the need to grow and learn. And these men are of corrupt character. That's why he compares them to these two characters. You won't find the name Janus or Jambres in the Old Testament, right? You'll see it more in Jewish tradition and Targum of Jonathan, where those magicians in Exodus chapter 7 that confronted Moses, if you will, they opposed Moses. That's what he's likening these false teachers to. And so Paul's simply saying in verses 5 to 8 to avoid, avoid godlessness in our lives, avoid godless religion, and avoid godless teachers. So what's the rule? What's the response from you? Well, avoid them. What do I mean by that? I mean by avoiding them, the word means literally to walk around them. Don't give them your ear. Don't give them a platform to teach. Now, I know we live in a tolerant culture, and this avoidance kind of feels like the old shunning days. You know, we're going to shun people. We're going to turn our back to them. That's not what I'm speaking about here. I'm speaking about you're avoiding their influence. You're not giving them a place to speak to you about spiritual things. That when godlessness is present or false teaching is present, that you don't, you're, you're avoiding giving them a place in your life where they can influence you. If you have people that come along and they're divisive in nature, they're trying to sow seeds of dissension within the church, you avoid them. That may mean silence and walking away. It may be confronting them. But we don't participate 
in allowing the seeds of doubt to be placed into our minds. Paul said the same thing in Titus. He said, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He's self-condemned. They're showing to you that they are not to be listened to. So we avoid them, but we also exercise discernment. You know, these, these false teachers aren't going to come through the front door. They're going to creep around the back. They may be eloquent. They may be persuasive. They may be easy to listen to. But discerning is you're, you're weighing, you're filtering, you're considering. Not just the content of their teaching, but the content of their lives. Right? So, so Paul, when he was speaking to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, he says, You know yourselves how I lived among you. Paul's pointing to his life. If you go on to verses 10, 11, and 12, Paul references his own example. You know, you want to know the character of the people that you're listening to. We have internet sensations. We have, you know, all kinds of TV preachers. Friends, be mindful. You have no idea what their lives are like. I'm not saying they're all bad. I'm just saying that it requires additional filtration when you don't know what their life is producing. And we want to be mindful about what, do we, what podcasts are we listening to? Who are the teachers we're listening to? Does it accord with wisdom? Do you sense that you have the ability to discern between truth and error? So we want to be discerning, more discerning. You know, it might be a good exercise to give your top five, you know, whoever you listen to most, give them to two or three people and say, what do you think of these teachers in my life? And, and then third, we want to be learners. We want to learn doctrine. And this particularly is not just, uh, this is for men. I'm calling you men. A lot of a lot of us as men have strong theologically based wives, and we often defer to them to take up the mantle of teaching. Men, may I encourage you to strengthen your own souls in these things of God? I wonder if these weak women, if they had husbands, should they have been there speaking? When Eve was being tempted, Adam was there, was he just standing? Why didn't he say something? You know, so, so there's a role, men, for us to play in our marriages, to be strong in our understanding of God and the gospel so that we can help discern. But ladies, this does not mean that you are not to pursue a theological acumen, an awareness, an ability to discern between truth and error, that you yourselves, you are to be learners, and you have more than the capacity to do it. I think about, for all of us, the warning in Hebrews, when the writer says, for although by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you, again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the work of righteousness, in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have the powers of discernment, trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. That's what we're all moving towards. 
And the church has a role to play in this, of course. It's not just on you. Avoiding and discerning and learning is a responsibility that every Christian bears, but so the church leadership bears. That's why we preach expositorily. We go through the books of the Bible, explaining verse by verse. That's what we're doing right now, so that you can understand it, and you will grow in these powers of discernment. We have Bible studies. We have men's conferences. We have women's conferences, all designed to help educate. These are the normal means of grace with which we want to plug into. But also we have membership classes trying to make sure we understand who's joining the church and they can understand us so that there's a, an understanding one with the other. There's elder interviews. Elders sit down and meet with each person to speak to them about their faith. Why? Uh, to make sure that we identify and we help them move forward in faith, but we're not unaware. So, so this is our effort at avoiding godlessness. Okay, the third point he makes is this idea of resting and rejoicing in the promise of God. Now, many of us at this point, you could feel, wow, this is kind of heavy right now. You know, we've got troubles coming, and we've got to avoid all these issues, and we've got to be aware of all these things, and we can be kind of discouraged. In fact, there's a recent book that's been out called uh, The Great Dechurching. So the authors of this book, The Great Dechurching, so the authors of the book are tracing the impact of the first two great awakenings and all the revivals and all the explosive growth towards Christianity in this country. And he's saying if you take all the growth that we've experienced over these few hundred years, he says there's a greater shift away from the church now. We're in a time where people are being dechurched, not churched, but dechurched kind of makes you think, what's going to happen? Are we going to make it? I mean, do you think we're going to, is the church going to survive? You know, many scholars think Timothy was actually beginning to waver. This is why Paul keeps pounding the drum to be prepared. Timothy was beginning to waver. Is the house coming down? Look what Paul says in verse 9. He says, but they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of these two men. Paul's saying, Timothy, just take a breath. They're not going to get too far. They will be exposed. What he's saying here clearly is that the church will survive. We will. The, the, the plans and the intentions of wickedness and godlessness, it won't get very far. And they may have some short-term gains, no doubt, but they won't get too far. Just like Janus and, and Jambres. You know, if you go back and read in Exodus 7, you know, when Moses comes and, and with Aaron and Aaron and they begin to do miracles before Pharaoh to bring the people out of Israel, to bring the people of Israel out of Egypt. You know, be, and, and these magicians who we think they are, these chief musicians, uh, they begin to do the same thing. So Aaron throws the staff down and it becomes a snake to show the power of God. And these magicians throw their staffs down and they turn into snakes. But what happens? Aaron's snake consumes the two snakes. And, 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 then, and then they begin to do further acts. But now they begin to not be able to replicate them. And so the magicians say, these are from the finger of God. They know. They've been exposed. They don't have the power. They can counterfeit, but they can't produce. And what Paul's saying is, they won't get very far. They'll be exposed we can rest assured, just back at chapter 219, what does he say? God's 
firm foundation will stand because he knows those who are his. So friends, we can be patient. Notice I've been in ministry over 30 years and I have seen philosophies and theologies come and be exposed and go. Some have lasted longer than others, but we've seen them come and go. We can rest. They won't get very far. They'll be exposed. Either their lives will be or the or the falseness of their teaching will be. But we are to be patient. That's why Paul said, be like the farmer. Be like the athlete. Be like the soldier. We press on. We persist. We are to be found faithful. He will expose them. I think oftentimes in this life, but for sure, when all things are brought to the truth of God. So we want to be patient. We want to do it together. We are a church, so God has drawn us together so that we would be fellow pilgrims, striving. Paul says this. He says, he says, may I hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Not being frightened in anything by your opponents. There is no reason for fright here. He says, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction and your salvation. So what Paul is instructing us to do, he says, listen, be prepared. You'll have troubles, trials come. And avoid that. Avoid it. Don't give them an ear. Don't give them a place in your life. Don't get persuaded by their position. And yet rejoice. God will bring to bear truth on the false teachings that come and that infiltrate and come in and creep among us, and we'll grow up in faith, we'll distinguish between truth and error, and his foundation will be firm, because he knows we are his. Let's take a moment and just ask God for grace, that we can walk out these practical instructions, or let's even celebrate. I mean, you can just, with you and God, just speak to him about uh, about his spirit moving in you to bring both conviction and celebration. And then I'll pray for us in just a moment. Father, I thank you that you, again, always leave us on a good word. Even, even though we, we learn about the difficulties and the challenges and, and how to respond, in the end, you always bring a firm word of hope. It will not get far. That your purposes will prevail to the praise of your glorious grace. So, Father, may we be a church that is, that is gentle as we correct our opponents, that we patiently endure evil, that we're kind to everyone, and yet we're able to teach. We're able to bring correction. We're able to discern truth from error. May we be that way, Father, that we might walk faithfully, that we might endure, that we might finish well, that we might hear, well done, 
good and faithful servant. Bring us together to that end, Father. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen, my friends. Let's stand together.